I'd always been realising with the current media landscape that you needed to have something of your own. So I've been thinking about something for a long time but couldn't quite get the concept right. And while I was walking from Sydney to Brisbane with my boyfriend, uh, there was lots, that was during the same-sex marriage website, encouraging people to vote yes. And um, I was, all of a sudden I thought, what's going to happen when people do vote yes? And that's when the idea came to me for Married Man. I always knew I would be able to present, come up with content, because that's what I do. I was the first editor at Vogue.com.au and then I was involved in the launch of L.com.au when that launched it. So I kind of already knew what was going to be involved. I also knew what my weaknesses were. Um, I cannot build a website. I wasn't interested in having a product that looked as though I had tried. <laughs> so I approached a digital agency, worked with them, and a brand agency. And they came on as partners as well, which has been a terrific relationship. Um, and it has helped it actually become something more than what I originally envisioned. Media gets a really bad rap as being a super competitive space, but I've just had nothing but encouragement and support from people I work with. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy. Welcome to Quit Your Day Job, a podcast for frustrated creatives. My guest this week is Damien Woolno. He's the former editor of Vogue.com.au. He was deputy editor of Elle magazine and fashion editor of The Australian. This year has seen Damien step out from behind the masthead of other magazine titles in order to launch his own online publication called Marry the Man. It's a luxury online platform and one-stop shop for all the men who are looking to do just that. Because this time last year, for those that don't know, the law changed in Australia in support of gay marriage, leaving a lot of guys very excited to tie the knot. Marry the Man is defined by its well-curated lifestyle content. It's colorful, it's beautifully simple. As a matter of fact, I was looking at it myself when looking to work out how my website was gonna look because it's so beautifully designed. Uh, it's a, such a timely and unique offering. It's got this built-in niche audience of traditionally double income, no kids earners. And by the time these guys have been allowed to get married, they are looking to do it right. So in comes Marry the Man with a ready-made offering of this digital publication where you can not only source inspiration, but also directly access the suppliers for this booming industry. And I also wanted to chat about the process of his developing his unique offering with Marry the Man while still keeping one foot in the freelance journalism space. Because this is one of the best ways that I think to start a soloist career journey is to make sure you are still keeping abreast of your contacts and your abilities and your skills within your pre-established career. I should also point out that since recording this interview, Damien has most recently been given the role of fashion editor for the Sunday Times magazine. This is a great conversation for anyone looking to launch their own online platform or those interested in the digital publishing space for fashion and lifestyle. Please enjoy my chat with Damien Woolno, the founder and editor-in-chief of Marry the Man and the fashion editor of the Sunday Times magazine, Perth. I love to start by asking people, when someone says, hey, what do you do? What do you tell them? I always say journalists. Okay. Because that's what it all comes back to. And I have known you in so many, or a couple of really great career chapters and when I first, and it's gone from what's always been different forms of publications, but to give, what would your agent use to give you a spiel of like, oh, Damon, he's come from X, Y, Z. What, so you don't have to feel bad about it, but you know yourself, you, what would you Oh, to sell myself. Sell, how would you sell yourself, or how would your agent sell you in terms of where you've come from? There's a running joke that anyone who has worked at Vogue, or what, no matter how small a period of time they've worked, they're always open this week. I worked at Vogue. So that, that's, that would be the first thing. So I worked at Vogue as editor of Vogue.com.au. Um, I've been deputy editor of Elle, uh, fashion editor of the Australian newspaper, arts and entertainment editor of the Herald Sun. Um, God, in style, um, and contributing writer at Harper's Bazaar. So I've, I've had a lot of chapters. And that would have been, because there's a lot of things, that would have been over 
an extended period, and in that time, journalism and publications have had so many, mm. you know, booms and busts and reinventions, and you know, even in terms of how people perceive them. Mm. What was the most exciting dynamic in uh, Blue Sky time in, in publishing in your career? The most exciting time was when I moved from Melbourne to Sydney, which was exciting in itself. I was going from newspapers, uh, where I'd been for eight or nine years, uh, which was a really traditional, low-key environment in Melbourne, very sporty, not very um, glamorous, but wonderful and wonderful training. And then I came to Sydney and it was working on magazines and it was photo shoots and it was models and it was parties and it was big budgets. Um, so it was, it was all French champagne, no Prosecco. So it was, um, it was exciting and opportunities in endless. What era was that? That would have been um, around 2000. Okay. So after the Sydney, I came here around the time of the Sydney Olympics. So everything was brimming with possibility. And what was the uh, period of high school into university, into early career like for you in a top line sense? Did you study journalism? Um, no. I. Let's, I've been one of those people who never knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. Never had any idea. I did work um, writing for a local newspaper while I was at school and naturally gravitated towards English. So when I went to university, I'd enrolled in arts at Monash with a view to transferring to law. Realised as soon as I got to university that I just wasn't ready at all. So I deferred, worked as a barman and an usher at the theatre, and then I, my mother I think got sick of me being on the couch and said, just why don't we go work at one of the newspapers, so they were you know, the Age or the Herald Sun. Uh, so I got a job at Herald Sun. And um, while I was at Herald Sun, so they used to have a cadetship system um, where you'd start as a copy kid go on to be a cadet, and that's how you become a journalist. Uh, this, you know, journalism degrees were not a big thing at that time. Um, but I continued to do work at the paper and also study a Bachelor of Arts at Melbourne and moved to Melbourne University. And at what stage did you think, this could be my industry, I think I belong here? I think when, so I, while I was studying and I worked at the theatre, uh, as a barman and a doorman, and I'd done some acting growing up. So one of the editors on the newspaper said, oh, you should do the daily arts column, you should write it. And um, you're, that was all you're the quality. <laughs> yeah, artsy. We just sort of came for your game. But um, <laughs> wonderful man, John Beveridge, gave me the opportunity to write a daily column, um, which I'm so grateful for. But doing that job, realising developing the connections, being able to tell the stories and becoming part of the world um, of the Melbourne art scene at the time with the opera, the ballet and the theatre was really exciting and I thought obviously I love the big personalities involved, the creativity involved and the storytelling involved um, and being able to share that excitement because they're not naturally my worlds but being able to share that excitement and enthusiasm with readers and then I transferred from one world of arts and entertainment to fashion. But it's the same approach. And was fashion an interest of yours before you started writing about it? It was through magazines and through print. So I've always had the love for media, but I grew up reading Smash Hits magazine, number one magazines, and you know, those real British pop magazines, which I loved. And then somehow it was because of Naomi Campbell being on the cover of another British magazine called Sky, that, and she was just so breathtaking, and still is so breathtakingly beautiful, that I must have seen her then on British Vogue and picked up British Vogue, and then I became obsessed with British Vogue, so fashion was an, an interest. And also, you know, dressing, going to Campbell Market in Melbourne, finding your own particular look, and expressing yourself creatively through clothes was something I sort of picked up hanging at the uh, National Theatre in St Kilda. And I suppose that was, uh, when were you your most sort of impressionable fashion-wise? Because I always love I, everything that I think is great about fashion comes from a mid-90s sensibility when I was my most absorbent of ideas. And, and I, I only ever refer to a mid-90s colour palette, style sensibility, or trend. And the good thing about 90s for me 
is that it was the first decade to reference every decade that had come before it for the previous century. So you can be doing 90s does, 70s or 90s does, mm -hmm. 60s or 90s does, 50s or 90s does, 80s. But if you were to uh, suggest where, what gave you your framework through which to view style, what era was that? There, so my favourite period aesthetically is the early 90s, but that's mainly through the filter of women's fashion and through the photographers at the time, Herb Ritz and Bruce Weber um, and, and those supermodels of that period. My own personal aesthetic is mid to late 80s. I think everyone as they go through their teens sort of has a particular relationship with, with the fashion at that time. So I'm really happy in jeans, black boots, white t-shirt, black dinner jacket from a market or bone pants and a chambray country road skirt. They're my skirt. <laughs> I'm really comfortable in a skirt, but in a chambray shirt. So they're my default fashion settings. So when you were evolving through the industry and constantly changing the type of role you were doing or the publication you were working for, did you always try, did you always move on because you wanted to level up in the space and do have access to opportunities that didn't exist previously? Like what usually inspired a move? Often it was just hitting roadblocks and needing to change jobs to, to further develop my career. In um, fashion, and particularly women's fashion, there, there are particular challenges as a male in that environment. So I think moving around was a necessity at times. So also on style, I always I had this conversation with someone about the what is what I think is a really obvious twenty year cycle of reinvention. I went to a trend forecasting day not too long ago, and they were showing all of these ideas that they think will come in the next two or three years. And I'm like, oh, so you mean ninety eight, ninety nine? That that's what you're telling me. And it was pretty much like you ripped pages from the Face magazine in ninety seven, ninety eight, and that's what they suggested was going to be 2018, 2019, 2020. Um, I was thinking that that could be the case because, for example. When I was 15, I was my most impressionable. I'm now 35, 20 years later. People within my age bracket and beyond are the ones who dictate trends based on what they think is great. And therefore, I'm probably going to be bringing up ideas if I'm in control of what I think is good. Mm -hmm. So I'm probably going to be referencing my most impressionable time 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or is it that fashion just needs 20 years to forget about bad taste ideas to then think that they're fascinating again? Like, do you believe in a in a two-decade cycle and where trend, trend cycles come from? Do you see things coming a mile away? And like, of course that's coming next because we've just come from that. Not necessarily. I think, I think it's not as laid out in such a roadmap sort of way. I mean, at the moment, yes, there is a big emphasis on the 90s, but you're also seeing early 80s, you're seeing American 80s, you're seeing Australian 80s, you're seeing Euro 80s. That's a really interesting um, concept because I definitely have noticed, you know, tweed uh, kind of yuppie 80s coming mm -hmm. through. And then I've noticed like American sportswear 80s coming through. For and sure. There are so many, well, now we're getting into territory, you've just come from Fashion Week. Mm -hmm. uh, is Fashion Week still happening or is it just ended? It, it's just finished. And part of my, my entry into paying attention to what was happening at Fashion Week was a side hustle project that you work on, which is You're In My Seat. Mm -hmm. For those who never heard of it, what is You're In My Seat? It's a little Instagram distraction that I do with Glynis Trail Nash, who's fashion editor at The Australian, um, where I used to work as fashion editor. And for us, it was just about having an opportunity to express straight after a show what our, our thoughts were. Because as soon as you, you finish a show, people come up to you, what do you think, what do you think? really really annoying um, so we just thought we'd record it and that way no one would have to ask us and it, it keeps us interested and engaged because we're having to go back and write about these collections um, in our other roles but to be able to do that instantly it gets to sort of a nice emotive reaction before you overthink things how do you deconstruct a collection because do you have a hit list of i want to get my head around from wearability through to wider social, sociological references to you know, the history of what that design has come from to where they are now. Do you have a, a checklist of, in your own mind of getting your head around how to explain what a collection was about to an audience that isn't a fashion audience? 
There is no sort of set. There probably is one subconsciously from having done this for, for 20 years, but um, I don't go in with an agenda like that. For me, it's up to the designer and the show to present that to you. It should be immediately apparent what they're referencing, who their customer is, um, their creative process, and that should come through from the clothes to the music to the attitude of the models. If I'm having to find that and check that off, they haven't done their job properly. So what do you, uh, uh, I would love to get onto Marry the Man because that's a really interesting project that's kind of blossoming at the moment. But are you dedicating uh, much of your career time to writing and creating work for a publication at the moment? Oh, for sure. Um, so writing predominantly for, there are quite a few that I write for, which is great. I'm writing for Marie Claire. Um, I love the Marie Claire aesthetic. I love their approach to service journalism, and that's something I've always been about, trying to inform and entertain at the same time. Um, for executive style, so which is more of a menswear approach. Uh, I think I recently did something for the wonderful people at Harper's Bazaar. So yeah, still very much engaged in that world and always will be, but it's not my um, dominant focus at the moment. But it, it, yeah, it's part of my life. So. And so, that brings me to Married Man. So for those who don't know, what is Married Man? So Married Man is a gay lifestyle website looking at style, grooming, travel, entertaining and gay weddings. Um, for me, I love lifestyle journalism is my background, but it was about putting that through uh, the filter of luxury, because luxury um, has also been my background, um, and presenting that through the filter of sort of gay romance mm. and happy ever afters. But hopefully not in too twee a way, but in a way that sort of celebrates this positivity. And it, that positivity might not speak to everyone, but it's an opportunity to, to have that and to explore and for people to dream, whether it's people who are about to get married, people who are already married, or even I get really excited about, you know, even like 15 year old boys being able to see examples of, of gay relationships and, and happy ever afters, because I certainly didn't have that growing up. I was having to rifle through libraries for copies of Giovanni's room or Ed, you know, Edmund White novels, which weren't always cheap. Well, the joy of gay sex, <laughs> the back of the library's tours, which was a bit cheery. No, it's so true. I mean, I always think one of my favourite publications, which comes out every uh, year or so, is Frankie Spaces. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, and I was like, after two or three issues, I was like, I kind of realised that what they're selling is happily ever after, mm -hmm. more than anything. More often than not, it's, it's couples in these beautiful creative spaces that they've made themselves, and all of the storytelling that accompanies the, the design features are really just how they met and how they built it themselves and, and it's it's marriage porn or it's mm. happily ever after porn. And and I love the fact that, you know, why shouldn't gay guys get to have that? Exactly. Because it won't be for everyone, but I think for those for whom it really resonates, why not have it in a way that's beautiful and, and you know engaging and inspirational? Like I was suggesting with um, another one of uh, the guests of the podcast recently, when I make content that's inspirational, that to encourage people to make or do something, I realize it'll fall into two categories. Those that will actually do the thing, and those that are just using the how-tos as inspiration for escapism or mm. maybe filling their, their well so that one day they might do something, but it's a long way off. So I don't think you necessarily have to be in the market for the thing to really get inspired by the world. For sure, I mean, that's... When I was flicking through those copies of British Vogue as a kid, I wasn't about to go out and buy a Chanel, you know, tweeds, skirt, yes. suit. Yes. But, um, but I, you know, it was that immersion and that fantasy and an idea of glamour that I was immersing myself in. So hopefully, um, people will be able to immerse themselves in the idea of happy ever afters or happy for nows. So, so take me through the process of taking it from a, hey, I could start a, a gay marriage lifestyle space, digital blog, website to actually making it happen. How did you, um, what talents or skills did you need to pull to bring it to life? To, I'd always been realizing with the current media landscape that you needed to have something of your own nowadays. It, I've always worked with big brands and enjoyed doing that. But there's 
very little security and um, decreasing opportunities in that space. So I've been thinking about something for a long time but couldn't quite get the concept right. Um, I'm not you know, a sample size, I'm not a, a selfie blogger type person and there are people who do that really well but that space is taken. Uh, so I've been thinking about it and while I was walking from Sydney to Brisbane with my boyfriend uh, there was lots, that was during the same-sex marriage plebiscite, um, encouraging people to vote yes. And um, I was, all of a sudden I thought, what's going to happen when people do vote yes? And that's when the idea came to me for Married Man. Um, I always knew I would be able to present, come up with content, because that's what I do. I aesthetically knew pretty much what I wanted to do because of having had a, that strong visual background working in magazines. And I'd also worked on the launch of two websites. So I was the first editor of Vogue.com.au and then I was involved in the launch of Owl.com.au when that launched it. So I kind of already knew what was going to be involved. I also knew what my weaknesses were. Um, I cannot build a website. I wasn't interested in having a product that looked as though I had tried. <laughs> so I approached a digital agency, worked with them, and a branding agency. And they came on as partners as well, which has been a terrific relationship. Um, and it has helped it actually become something more than what I originally envisioned. What does that mean when someone comes on as a partner? They see potential in the project and they um, have some, they've got skin in the game in terms of you know, the investment, if it does well, they do well? Yes, exactly. Um, the, for, the main thing for me was that they believe in the project. Uh, and they had been involved actually in helping us get some messaging out around the wall. So I knew that they were committed to, to the cause, but um, they actually really believed in it. So that was the most important thing. But yes, they're, um, they're invested in the project, which is great. And what does that mean for you now in terms of how you decide to split your time between the work you're doing for other people and, and this project? Could, could this project be your full-time gig? That's the goal eventually and obviously that's going to take time. Um, it's, it's going to take money. Uh, but I've got the time to do that and it's already just bringing me so much more satisfaction and joy. and. I've been really surprised by the amount of support from the other aspects in the industry. Um, media gets a really bad rap as being a super competitive space, but I've just had nothing but encouragement and support from people I work with, which has been fantastic. So it really um, mobilizes you, encourages you. But yes, the plan is for this to become the, the, the dominant force in my life, and especially when we launch print in September. Um, which will be twice a year. And is that uh, still an necessary part of, of being in publishing that you would try and exist in print for the reach or for the, valid, the validation of, of knowing, yes, this is print as well as digital, so it means more than just every other digital only platform? Like what's the big. That's pretty much. The main thing is my love for print. I do believe print offers a different experience, but just by its physicality, a sense of permanence, um, but I just love it, there's just something more to it, that romance, but there is a validation, it is also what sets you apart from other digital products out there. And I love the idea that you found, um, you married your skill set of the things that you like to, <laughs> pardon the yeah. to do, you, you took what you love to do and something you actually care about and are interested in, sort of leads into that change I want to see in the world sort of um, way of thinking and maybe because you were committed on a couple of different levels it was easy for people to be inspired by the intention and join you in the journey. Uh, how did you, what do you say for other people who are trying to find that way of connecting the dots between you know something that they could potentially do and something that's really worth going you know all in on? How did you know that this was for you the right investment? It took time. It really is about waiting for that thing that does. For me, it was about waiting for that thing that felt right. And I knew the moment I had the thought of 
point when the, that I yelled out down the road to Adam, my boyfriend, about it, that this was the project to pursue. It had been a, a friend of mine, Paula Joy, has a fantastic website, The Joy Report, had a similar background in publishing and had been telling me years ago that I needed to do something like this. And we were on a, a boat in Dubai when she first told me, she reminded me the other day. And it has been a process since then of coming coming to the right concept. And it's been really frustrating because I did want to develop my own project, but as soon as I came across this concept, it just felt right. And it has flowed as a result of that. And I'm hoping as a business it will continue to flow with that, but everything about it has felt right. Not to say that it has been without challenges, there's, there's obviously frustrations that occur in building a website, but um, most of all, it, it has felt like the right thing to do. It's like when you're in a good relationship, you know it feels right. Have there been any failure to launch projects or the trial and error uh, experiments that have maybe been the thing and you've taken it to a few steps and realised after investing a little bit of resource in it that, that this wasn't the thing and back to the drawing board? Not so much projects that I've attempted to start up. I've tried to start so many novels in my life, so that might be something. Um, I No, it's been more that I probably have felt too committed to having that traditional career path at times, so not giving myself over to this opportunity, um, which is just a matter of upbringing. Uh, my parents have, have had, the, had the same jobs their whole life, and that was the way I was raised. I was always thought that I had a certain career path, and that would be to end up editing a magazine. Most of the magazines I wanted to edit closed. So it was about removing myself from that traditional career path, but there was there were no other um, failure to launch projects before this. Um, but probably I've done that through different jobs. In, in trying those, thinking they might be the one and then realizing that they're not. Did you have any, like, who have, did you have any modeling on other publications, digital or otherwise, that you thought they're doing it really well, I'm going to take this from those guys, this from those guys. And who are your sort of heroes in terms of people who've done something like Marry the Man previously? There haven't been, which is really bizarre. I have no, I talked to my friends who are very much about business research, about testing the market, um, looking at other examples. I didn't do that. Um, which hasn't been about being careless, it's about just wanting to create something of my own that wasn't heavily influenced by us. I can tell you websites that I love, magazines that I love, and they all come to rest in sort of the, the current product. But there was no, okay, I wanna, I wanna do that or that. It was, it's been lurking at the back of my mind for so long, it's just like, it's kind of like my Wonder Woman, my, my baby moulded in clay that I've just sort of channeled and it's become a thing, but this one doesn't have a lasso or star spangled niggas. But in terms of the spiritual godparents of your baby in clay, who, I, when I look at Marry the Man, it looks cool. Like it looks like something that, however I felt about marriage, I would want to exist in that space as a lifestyle publication. What are the inspirations that have given it its look and its aesthetic or its um, you know, logistical unfolding in the, in the way in which people receive the information. The, in terms of the design and the look, there are lots of titles out there that have that same clean aesthetic that I love. Um, you know, I love Fantastic Man, the look of that magazine. I love the look of the Cut website from New York Magazine. I look, there are just so many titles out there. Um, so we came up, the Born and Raised, the, the branding agency I worked with sort of came up with a look and we were very happy with it. It was very clean and very white, you know, white, big heavy fonts and then it was just missing that element of celebration and that came from, the, well, and I hate the rainbow flag by the way, I just, you know, not what it represents but just the look of it, the colours of it. I make those colours flattery. Yeah, those, you know, those people that drape them on their shoulders, which is great, but it just always looks awful. But I thought we need that element of celebration. It shouldn't shy away from being a gay publication. 
Um, so we decided to incorporate the rainbow palette to each of the sections, but dialed it down. Just yeah, those shades, those muted shades are really tasteful. Yeah. So it's not like crimson; it's tomato, and it's not. This is you with the colours. You're so spot on. It's yeah. tomato. It's like your marigold. Yes. Top. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not like yeah. It's not yellow. It's it's like a marigold. Which is my favourite, the marigold one. Um, but yeah, so I was bringing those elements into the visual look. But there were there were no real. I also didn't want it to be too over designed. It still has to be very accessible. Although the content is through the filter of luxury, there are still elements of, that need to be accessible, which is the approach I've had to all of the publications I've worked on, from the Herald Sun and Sunday Telegraph to Vogue. You still have to give people, let people in some way so that there is a, an accessible price point product as well as the dream product. And there had to be ways to let people into that. What does marrying the man? Oh, so in terms of letting people in, is that purely through the design or have that been other choices that have... Design, content, um, not being too, not being snide, trying to make it a really positive space but still have personality. It's not too edgy, uh, but it's still hopefully current. And so I love the idea of, uh, you know, when you get a chance to make it your when you're, it's your baby and you're doing it for yourself, you can sort of craft it, in, you know, according to who you want it to relate to. Who's your idea, ideal recipient of Marry the Man? There is no ideal. There, there, there is sort of, it sort of touches on what we were talking about before. It's the young person dreaming of happy ever after. It's, it's the couple who are thinking of getting married, but you know, wanting to buy the outfits for the honeymoon, wanting to plan the reception, wanting to plan the actual ceremony. Uh, and then it might be older couples just wanting to immerse themselves in that world. There, there is a key audience, probably 25 to 45, if you wanted to narrow it down to that, with a, hopefully a high disposable income, touching into a, a luxury audience, but it really has to be for everyone. I, I love the idea that it's yeah, connecting well, things that you love and putting this amalgamation of things together in this beautiful space to share ideas. Um, when you came to work out you know, how to, the idea of that one day it will be your main source of income, when you, when you create a website and people are saying, well, how can I make money from launching something? How does one end up monetizing that space when it is successful? Is it through people paying to advertise on the website? Is it through brands that want to have their their um, advertise through the space that, that stand to benefit from showing people their services around weddings? Through you know, how does it become a, a business a website? So we're looking at three, I think, around three different streams of revenue, and that will be through display advertising but hopefully more through sponsored content. Um, once they're called advertorials, people want native content, we'll have them as partnerships to fit with the Married the Man vibe. Um, and I think that's more about, you know, there's this, people are beginning to realise that there's this audience to talk to, particularly advertisers. We have people like Apple and Tiffany and Absolute talking directly to a gay audience. But there are a lot of advertisers that perhaps don't know the best way of doing that. And it's about partnering with them to create content that does speak to uh, the gay community in an engaging and hopefully original way. I saw, I think I might have been telling you this, uh, I was driving along one of the big overpass bridges in Melbourne in the Docklands and there was a huge billboard with two crops, you couldn't see their heads, but two grooms in tuxedos with like everything must be perfect, full stop, full stop, full stop, as the slogan of whatever this gay marriage service offering was. And I was just thinking it'll be so much fun to see all of these um, this advertising come through because this will be a big space monetarily to then, it's almost like, you know, my parents are in aged care and everyone's always saying, oh, it's an aging population, what a great business to be in. Well, this feels like, you know, gay marriages as in, from the luxury end, it seems like something that will only continue to grow because you've got 
C's and D's with high affordable incomes and you know people who are ready to we've been waiting decades to be able to say I do and when we finally do that they'll want to do it well mm. in a luxury sense um, do you think about what the long-term goal for it is would you love it to be existing in other platforms could Married Man grow into any other media formats besides from an online and print publication yeah, it's so early a TV series maybe perhaps it's so early days we're waiting to see what people respond to the most through our traffic and, and probably will grow out of that um, and I'm just waiting to hear from people about what they want I think it's really interesting what you raised about the images and the expectation around gay weddings at the moment um, and that pressure to have the perfect wedding which I think society has created and that great Saturday Night Live sketch that most people have seen um, Xanax for Gay Weddings I think it was called which is brilliant but there is that concept that goes around gay people being tastemakers of the pressure to have the perfect, the ultimate um, what and I think people are surprised that not as many people have raced out no. and gotten, as mar gotten married straight after the legislation. I'm kind of surprised that people have shown uh, uncharacteristic restraint. And I think that's because perhaps people don't want to deal with that pressure, but I think it is new territory and people are going to, and advertisers and, and also products are going to have to talk to the audience in a new way and find out what they want. And some of the weddings we've already featured on the site haven't been about having that perfect celebration. They've been about creating something far more personal, uh, some around families, some, some... One was in London, which was the registry office, and then a bottomless brunch afterwards. So what's exciting is that there's this new opportunity to create new celebrations that draw from old traditions of marriage and what marriage means to some people, but also creating something exciting in you that will probably influence other weddings as well outside the gay community. But um, I think it's about finding ways to speak to the gay audience and I don't think it's just going to be about a perfect Sex in the City 2 wedding with Liza Bowie performing. <laughs> you mean Liza Bowie performing at every gay wedding? I'm not into it. Marsha Hines apparently is the Liza at the moment, already performing at Gay Wedding this year. So if, if you need that, get Marsha, apparently. If you haven't done so already, open up iTunes and leave a review because that will allow people to discover this information for themselves. And as far as sharing the goodness, if you do like anything you hear in one of these episodes, please feel free to send it to someone who might find it inspiring. The very best thing you could do, however, is to screen capture it and to post it to your Instagram stories and tag me, Dan Brophy, so that people can hopefully discover the podcast for themselves and ideally be part of a revolution in which we encourage frustrated creatives the world over to emancipate themselves and start to do work that they love for a living. I believe in you. We had coffee about a year or two, a year and a half ago, and I think I was talking to you about what I wanted to do from within my own personal offering, combining a few things that I liked into some form of output online. And I remember you saying somewhat with a raised eyebrow, do you want to be a brand? And so there is some, which before the notion of I want to be a brand became this derogueur notion that everyone's thinking of themselves in terms of personal brand. There was some part of the uh, Marry the Man offering when you first started rolling things out that featured yourself and your partner Adam. And, and I was wondering what you think of the importance of connecting to the person behind the offering these days. Do you think it's necessary for us to know who the person behind Marry the Man is in order for us to be able to relate to it? That was a big personal challenge for me because, yes, I am cynical about that because um, mainly because of my background was working for, for brands where you never put yourself forward. You were always the brand. Uh, you were always sort of, so you were out there, you were old, you were low, you weren't yourself. Um, now, you know, that, that's been a shift and people have embraced that shift and ran with it. It's not something I personally feel comfortable with. So that's why it's not called Marry Damien. It's, it's Marry the Man. It's about creating a brand 
that I could sit the day. However, I felt it was important to put myself out there because I do have experience in these areas. I have been doing this for a long time, so hopefully that adds some credibility to the product. Also, I thought it was important to tell my story with Adam on how we came to the concept or how I came to the concept while we were walking together. I didn't want it to be seen as an opportunistic product that had just been put out there because the, the, the vote had happened and we're going to try and make money from this. It really was an organic journey and I needed to tell that um, to make that clear that it wasn't opportunistic. There's opportunity, great, but it wasn't a, a grab for attention, that there's actually heart behind it, which is odd for me because I am also naturally a cynical person. Um, and so much of fashion criticism at the moment has been criticism. So don't they look awful in that dress? You know, it's best and worst of, of the Oscars. So it's exciting now to go into a product like Marry the Man that is about positivity. I'm surprisingly enjoying it. I love the idea that we uh, that gay marriages will gay wedding ceremonies will learn from the mistakes of our hetero brothers and sisters over the years because haven't we all been to enough shit weddings in our lives to know what not to do? And let's hope that like the best men's speeches will just be a little bit more um, you know refined this time around. But I wonder whether or not the people will be a little bit more inclined to work out how to find a natural, organic, so, to throw the party that you want to attend and to make that your wedding. You know, because I think for some reason, what always frustrates me about so many hetero weddings I go to is that there are all of these traditions that they feel they need to acknowledge to the point at which the bride and groom disappear in this series of cliches. And the very best weddings I ever attend is when you can see the bride and the groom in every choice along the way. Not because that bouquet describes them as individuals best, but because it just feels like we're joining them in something that is ultimately the sort of party that they would throw, even if it wasn't a wedding. So I'd love to, you know, I'm interested in the idea of what that looks like. What, from what you've seen so far, what is the future of gay weddings going to look like? Will they just be hetero reflective of where we've been in the past or will they look like some new form of party that we've never seen before? I think it will be more like what you're saying, a new form of party. I think people are after bespoke, tailored experiences that reflect their personal journey and their commitment. They will still, I think, for quite some time, borrow from the traditions that we have because that's, for a lot of people, what makes a wedding, reading vows to each other, um, walking down an aisle, aspects such as that work for a lot of people. But it's an exciting space because, particularly for two men, I think weddings in media for the past few decades are all focused on the bride. And you know, it has been referred to as a bridal industry. That no longer is now the wedding industry. So to make grooms the focus and men the focus of it just throws that all up in the air anyway. Who walks down the aisle? Who stands there? So from the very beginning, everything is sort of thrown in the air. Um, I think that they, they will sort of for a while continue to reflect, but I think there's just such a great opportunity for change. And that's what I'm really excited about being in this space and being hopefully being a part of that change where people can draw and create their own bespoke, tailored experiences to, to celebrate and have that party. So you just to touch on your general uh, process when it comes to journalism and what you love to do about the, the creative work that you do, do you consume a lot of information from a number of different sources that inspire how you write and the work you do? Yes. What does it look like? It's, it's I'm just, I'm a sponge. <laughs> it's, a, sorry, I was trying to do an Arnie Mae imitation of Agnes Gooch, but I didn't commit. Um, I will sashay away. No, it, um, I just am such a filter. I'm always picking up magazines, always reading, always on my phone looking at things. So it's not a, 
a concerted thing and it's not I don't really deeply research pieces it's just hopefully continuing to have a finger on a lazy pulse but um who do you love as a consumer when you um when you do fall in love with the publication every release becomes like a little ceremony and you I sometimes find myself looking for like I love Wish magazine in Australia I always get it and grab coffee and just you know I, I really turn it into like a ceremony because I look forward to it so much and uh, is there anything that you're uh, looking forward to and, and cherishing when it gets released these days, even in terms of your online space? Oh gosh, I really look forward to the seasonal new collections issues, magazines, um, uh, around like Arena Mong, um, GQ Style, um, and it, the March issue, September issue of Vogue, just to see what's happening in photography, in layout. Um, Web-wise, you know, I'm always looking at the cut, always looking at the New York Times, um, which is my main source of sort of news news. Don't sort of have a, a wish messing. I don't sort of have one that I'm particularly in love with at the moment. I'm sure it will come. Um, I think that's almost been replaced by sort of my Netflix sort of binge-watching series have sort of taken over that biggest love for a magazine but I'm sure there'll be a product that you know, Monocle first came out or even when Wallpaper first came out you, know, you had those sort of addictions now it's shit screen so. do you um do you have any like when you when I'm in brain dead and I can't and I just want to be on my phone just like consuming something nice I'll go to Vogue Runway and just like flat out skip through things and just save items what's your um way to collect information do you use pinterest do you save things to your bookmarks in your web browser how do you screenshot things into your phone a photo section of your phone how do you sort of pull information it, it, i don't i've got to get onto pinterest but i haven't so it probably won't happen um i and i don't have scrapbooks i don't keep things on my phone i keep it all in my head um it's all up there I'd rather look at things, or else you just end up with masses and masses of things. And I, I used to have, you know, back issues of Vogue back to the day, back issues of Vanity Fair back to the day. But um, no, I got rid of them all. And I date a hoarder, not a hoarder, he has lots of taste for lots of things, but there's no room. So when, when you think about when I think about my favorite publications throughout time, I always think of certain boom periods for publications that I fall in love with. You know, like for me, early noughties, the Face magazine was a big thing, or, uh, you know, that when Fabian Barron started doing um, Interview Magazine, it was just this whole new feeling that I haven't remembered feeling for a long time for a publication. You know, do you have periods of t throughout time that have been um, golden eras of any publications that you've loved in the last couple of decades. I'm going to jump back to the 60s and I was not born in the 60s. I have this book that I found at Camwell Market called The 60s in Vogue and it has been my trusted reference throughout my whole career in fashion. Uh, the photography from that period, the personalities from that period, I just think, and, and the writing, the journalists they had, of such a high caliber uh, that it continues to be my it's my treasure my golden book and one of my those moments where you get validation was when I was working at InStyle magazine and the fashion editor there Judith Cook was still the most talented stylist I've ever met and the most stylish woman I've ever met um, Judith had the same book on her desk and I was like oh, you're the solid meant to be. It was, it was meant to be, but that is the period. I, I do love that face period. I love the Buffalo era, uh, Barry Cayman, but um, no, I, I hate 60s. Most, I dislike a lot of 60s fashion, but that book for me is nice. And when you were thinking about what the tone of the, you were in my seat that you wanted to create with Glimpse, to me, I was saying, it's, it's, it's Australia's answer to Tim Blaine, so you're using it anyway, but you know, they're, they're there were, uh, it reminded me of Jeannie Becker and Tim Blanks, all these things that I've loved in terms of piece to camera fashion journalism that was, you know, you heard of it first, reporting from the front line. 
Were you uh, tapping into any, any particular style of reportage that you wanted to create with your own IC? You were telling me before that you filmed yourselves, it doesn't work so well when someone's filming for you. Um, was it just a case of like recreating the experience of talking to you at the point at which the show finished that you wanted to put a frame around? It was not, once again, I'm not a big researcher of how to do things. They just sort of either happen or they don't in my world. And Tim Blakes is obviously an influence because I admire his approach to reviewing because he doesn't just review the clothes. It is the music, it is those references. It's the sociological context. It's, yeah. the, it's the history of the designer. For sure. And of all, Tim and Susie Matthews are probably my, you know, the two reviewers I, I admire most. Susie, I mean, her reviews that she used to have in the International Herald Tribune were just my Bible. I think because I was a bit in sync with her thinking um, that I enjoyed it so much. So they're probably coming subliminally, but it was more about, yeah, just wanting to share that. And we have known each other for quite some time. And we found that we just, that people that follow actually just enjoy the dynamic. And some of them, I don't even know if we get around to talking about the clothes. There's one in particular where I don't think we did get around to talking about the clothes. But it's just, sometimes it's just about that energy of being front row. It's about wanting to feel a part of it. And sometimes it's just about criticism because there isn't a great deal of actual specific fashion criticism at the moment. Everything's either, this looks great on a blogger, or magazines can't go into that area because they'll upset their advertisers. So I think people also enjoy having a point of view. It's really good actually for anyone who uh, wants to yeah, just feel like they were right there with you. It's a lovely way to taste it. And I think you're in, it's, in, it's enjoyable from the perspective of two friends' experience together as much as it is from... Uh, I hope so, yeah. In fact, probably more of our influences than Tim and Jeannie and all of those people. We're probably Margaret, Margaret and David, David yes. at the movies, because I think we're like, it, it's a bit more sort of, yeah, Margaret and David than, than those people, which is kind of hopefully good, because I loved Margaret and David. Which one are you? I think I love Margaret. <laughs> I need to sort of brush my hair forward a bit, and I think Glynis is, is, is a bit more David. The voice of reason. Yeah, she's a bit more sort of, Glynis, maybe it's the glasses, she comes off as a bit more considered. I'm always there for the double entendre. Well, the joke on the gun that rooms. That's it. Um, I love to end by saying to people, hey, if I was to bump into you in a year's time, what is one project that you are currently entertaining that you would love to have completed entirely or a goal within a pre-existing project? I'd love to be have married a man being 80% of my life, both financially and professionally. Uh, I don't think I'll ever stop freelancing for other titles. Uh, it's a, a privilege to work with them and a great way of developing my skills and staying in touch with a wide range of issues. But marrying a man is something I'm completely believing, completely devoted to at the moment, which is part of that feeling right about something that we talked about earlier. So yes, that's where I'll be. When you know it's the one, it's, it's the one. It's time to commit. Let's make it real. <laughs> Thank you so much. Pleasure. You're a doll.